From Cafe.com, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Scale of 1 to 10, how scary is Bob Mueller? <laughs> if you're working with him, uh, you better have your stuff together. How scary is he if you're his potential target? They use the Spinal Tap reference. Goes, Goes to, to 11. 11. That's my guest on the show today, Lisa Monaco former advisor to Barack Obama on homeland security and counterterrorism. One of the reasons I want to talk to Lisa Monaco is because the only way we get just policy is if the people who are calling the shots and deciding the issues care about justice too. So I wanted to talk to her about how to fairly and effectively advise a president. And by the way, she also served for three years as chief of staff to special counsel Robert Mueller. And we'll get into that too. So people tell me we have a lot of new listeners. Welcome. If you haven't heard the first two episodes, go check them out. And going forward, we'll have new episodes every Thursday. Now I'm going to answer some questions. You guys have been tweeting, leaving voicemails, so let's get into that. Our first call comes from Woody in Buffalo. Hey, Preet. This is Woody Brown from Buffalo, New York. I'm not calling to ask about uh, Trump at all. I'm, I'm interested in what you might have to say about the vacation of the convictions of Adam and Dean Skelos and of Shelley Silver as a resident of the state of New York. I followed those trials really, really closely. So I'd be interested to know your thoughts on what became of them. So Woody, that's a question that a lot of people have been asking in New York at least. And for those of you who haven't been following New York politics the last few years, just very briefly, Sheldon Silver used to be the Speaker of the New York State Assembly, and Dean Skelos was the Republican State Senate leader. One was a Democrat, one was a Republican, and we, my old office, charged them with public corruption crimes at around the same time, went to trial against both of them, convicted them, got a jury unanimously to decide they were guilty. And just to provide some context, Sheldon Silver was convicted after a fair trial of engaging in quid pro quos in a couple of different ways, taking money from people hiding the fact that he took that money, and doing favors for other folks. And one of the things that State Senator Dean Skelos was convicted of was putting the arm on businesses, including donors, to give a no-show job to his son, Adam. And in the intervening time since then and now, the Supreme Court, in its infinite wisdom, decided a case involving corruption charges against the former governor of Virginia, Governor McDonald. And because of that case and the narrowing of what it means to engage in official action in return for, you know, a bribe or some other thing and a quid pro quo, as people call it, the convictions of both Sheldon Silver and Dean Skelos were recently overturned. You know, if you want to know how I feel about it, I'm unhappy about it. The prosecutors in my office are unhappy about it. The FBI agents who worked on the case are unhappy about it. And a lot of people in New York State who care about clean government are unhappy about it. The good news is my old office has promptly decided to retry both of those men on corruption charges because the appeals court found there was more than sufficient evidence to convict them. It just turns out, not to get too into legalese, one of the bases on which we argued that they might be guilty has been taken away by the Supreme Court in McDonnell. Now, a lot of people don't like the Supreme Court decision because they think it makes it easier for people in politics to commit corrupt acts. Some people have called it naive. It will make it harder to prosecute corrupt politicians. But with respect to the cases that my office tried, we still think that there's overwhelming evidence, and I have great confidence in the prosecutors in my office who are going to be running into court to retry the case. And I think that justice will still be done. The next question comes from Twitter, from someone at Melalena, 
You guys are not picking easy names for me to do here. At Melalena asks, I would love to know why Mueller would threaten indictment of Manafort instead of just doing it. So that's a great question. Obviously, that's a reference to special counsel Robert Mueller, who's doing the Russia investigation. And Manafort is a reference to Paul Manafort, former campaign chief for Donald Trump. And it gets to an important point I think that people need to remember in all of this reporting about what's happening in the Russia investigation. Point number one is the only person or people who really know what's happening are special counsel Mueller and his team. And some things leak out from time to time because that's just how the world is and how life works. So I also read that report suggesting that Robert Mueller had specifically told Paul Manafort to expect to be indicted. And I think this week Roger Stone has said the same thing, not exactly a font of credibility. And it just struck me as odd because in my experience overseeing lots and lots of different investigations as the U.S. attorney, it's typically not done in this way. You don't tell a target, uh, we're going to definitely indict you in some period of time. What does sometimes happen, and maybe that's what happened here, again, it's just educated speculation on my part, is that agents made very clear to Paul Manafort and his lawyers that he is in some amount of jeopardy. And they're pushing hard for various purposes, including potentially to have him flip, as we call it in the government, and provide evidence. Because usually it's the case that you help yourself more as a target the earlier you come in, the earlier you express remorse for your conduct. And the earlier you can provide leads and information about other people who are higher up for the government to use. So it is not unusual for prosecutors and investigators to play hardball saying your guy is in trouble. But it is unusual, and I doubt this happened, to say definitely expect to be indicted in a case like this. So as you read stories going forward about the Russia investigation, uh, look, reporters have an interest in trying to get scoops on things and beating each other to the punch on what's happening I would take all reports, no matter what the source and what the magazine or newspaper, with a grain of salt. Mr. Berard, I'm a uh, law enforcement officer. I work in New York City right now. Uh, My question is, with yesterday's uh, attack on protesters uh, by guards of President Erdogan, the thought's been running through my mind, as well as other law enforcement officers, is what we could do in a situation like that when we see foreign guards uh, unlawfully attacking uh, protesters in our presence on American soil, what can we do if we were to arrest someone doing that? What would the consequences be for us? So thanks for that question. As many of you know, President Erdogan is the leader of Turkey. And on a couple of different occasions, his sort of henchmen physically assaulted protesters of Erdogan in the United States. And to the extent you ask what can be done about it, I guess law enforcement can do something about it. If a law enforcement officer is present and seeing one human being beating up another human being, you make an arrest. And the issue of diplomatic immunity or anything else or international relations and foreign policy, that can get worked out later. My understanding is there were not enough law enforcement folks around at the embassy in D.C. a few weeks ago to have arrests be made. Sometime after that, those people were charged, but they were long gone by then, and some of them have diplomatic immunity. So it becomes a difficult matter, and I have some experience with this, in prosecuting people who have A, left the country, and B, can claim diplomatic immunity, and people have a different view about whether or not that should be the case or not, but it happens to be a matter of of law and international norms that you can't bring them here and prosecute them. But I'll tell you what can be done and what should be done, and we haven't seen it be done, and that is the President of the United States, who claims to be about America first, and who claims to be about the rule of law and law and order, has, as far as I can tell, not said one thing about the fact that this strongman from Turkey has allowed his people to do this. In fact, Erdogan claimed that Trump apologized to him for the charges against his bodyguards, who beat up protesters, some of whom were American. 
you know, for law and order to work and for rule of law to mean something, it is not just charges being brought at the local level or at the federal level. It's also about the leader of the country standing up for, you know, public safety and standing up to someone who thinks he can get away with these kinds of things and this kind of thuggery in a country that's not even his own. And so if there's something to be outraged about, it's the silence of the president of the United States with respect to what Erdogan's henchmen have been doing. We've got one more call. This one's from New Orleans. Hi, Preet. My name's uh, Farav Brambat. I'm calling from New Orleans, Louisiana. I don't really have a question. I just want to say that I'm really inspired by the work you're doing. And I was really, really impressed with how you don't hesitate to show that you have an Indian heritage. And I think that's really fantastic. I'm a really young guy, and you're definitely somebody I'm looking up to. And wish you and your podcast and everything you do uh, the best of luck. Uh, Take care. (laughs) Okay, my bad. No real question there. I just wanted to play that one for mom. My guest this week is Lisa Monaco, who has had a lot of titles. Um, I think the most appropriate to give to her is General Badass. Lisa most recently advised the President of the United States, Barack Obama, on counterterrorism and homeland security. She also has done in her career all sorts of other things, including working with Robert Mueller on the Enron Task Force, also worked for Janet Reno, also worked for Joe Biden. So when I say we want to interview on the show people who have been in the room, here's what I can say about Lisa Monaco. More than anyone else I know, she has been in the room where it happens. So that conversation is coming up right after this break. Stay tuned. Right, Hamilton, you get the Hamilton? Uh. Lisa Monaco, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So you've worked for a lot of important people that folks have heard of. Mm -hmm. Janet Reno, Joe Biden... Barack Obama, and you were at one point the chief of staff to Robert Mueller. That's right. So let me maybe start with Robert Mueller, much in the news. Mm -hmm. In recent months, he was the FBI director for 10 plus two years and was appointed the special counsel by the Trump administration in connection with the Russia investigation. And you'll appreciate this. Uh, We went to the press conference and you were there as well, announcing the arrest, a couple of people who were charged with conspiring to assassinate the Saudi ambassador. And before we went out, to the podium, Bob Mueller literally made fun of me for wearing a blue shirt. I remember that. He's a white shirt guy, <laughs> former Marine. And so I have been, I will tell you, professionally and personally upset to see a person like that who was a valiant member of the military, served in every capacity you can imagine in the Justice Department as at the, and at the head of the FBI in the wake of 9-11. And I get upset when I see people engaging in character assassination of a public servant like that, even if they have different political views, I find that unacceptable. Now, you were his chief of staff for how many years? Three years. Three years. Mm-hmm. How does it make you feel when you hear people saying the kinds of things they're saying about him? You know, I've had a few reactions to that. Um, one is, like yours, incensed that people would question or call into question the integrity of this man who I know well uh, and have uh, the utmost respect for when he has such a long history of service to this country. But the thing and you'll appreciate this, Pete, is I know that it doesn't affect him. This is a guy whose whole mantra is keep your head down and just do the work. He weathered a lot of uh, issues when he was FBI director. He came under a lot of fire in the wake of 9-11. So he's used to seeing arrows come from all sides, but it's not going to affect how he does his job. What, What do you have to say to people who, for political reasons, are questioning his motivations? It tells me they don't know him, 
And they certainly don't understand the mission of the special counsel, the, how it's set up, and they don't understand the job of prosecutors and investigators. A lot of people have suggested, well, the point of it is to bring a charge or to make a referral. Otherwise, what's the point? And I try to explain, and some people don't like it on the left, people who don't like the president. No, it's not that he's assembled a team that is destined to make a charge. Mm -hmm. He's hired a team that is schooled in how the law works and how to gather facts and will get to the truth. And that might lead to charges or a referral against one or more people or not. Sure. And I, I know a number of people on the team, and this you could not find a, uh, a greater assembly of talent, experience uh, across all the different disciplines that are going to be required for a case like this. So this, it's really without parallel, the team he's assembled. And the goal and the, the focus of a team like this, from the investigators to the prosecutors that he's assembled, is to find the truth, however that falls out. If there is a charge to be made, I have no doubt that they will assemble that and be able to present that evidence. If there is not, frankly, people on the other side, the critics, ought to be happy that it's Bob Mueller who's doing this because no one is going to have greater credibility than him to lay out the facts as he finds them. Can we spend a minute talking about why it takes so long? Sure. I've said many times it takes a while to do a proper investigation. And part of the reason is... You don't know where all the dots are to be connected. And so you will send out a subpoena to a financial institution and you'll get some documents back and you'll see some money coming into a bank account. And then it's only then, some weeks later when you get the return on that subpoena, that you find other bank accounts who have been putting money into that. And then you have to then go through the process of issuing a subpoena to the other bank. And the same is true when it comes to interviewing witnesses, right? You talk to people, you interview witnesses in an investigation like this or any investigation, and they refer to a meeting or another person who was at a meeting or another person who was part of a conversation who you as the investigator, the prosecutor, didn't even know existed or was part of this set of events. And now you've got to go talk to that person. So it is a seemingly endless string of potential leads, whether it's on paper or whether it's in the interviews that they conduct. And that can prompt another series of investigative steps. The other thing I think is that I'm amazed at when I see people commenting on this is when they say that Mueller and his team are conducting investigative steps for the purpose of sending signals or for the purpose of intimidation. And it makes me crazy. It makes me crazy too. Because they, the people saying that, A, don't understand how investigations work, and so they can be forgiven for that. Uh, but B, they don't understand Bob Mueller, and so I suppose they could be forgiven for that. But then don't impute motives uh, to an individual. Well, part of it, it seems people love the spectacle of sport, and people would say that about me when I was a U.S. attorney, and in some way it was mano a mano between me and whoever the potential target was, and that's not how we go about it. It seems that people don't always get that Bob Mueller has a crack team of prosecutors and investigators, he has a considerable budget, and he has subpoena power, and armed men at his disposal to find out evidence. That's the kind of guy who doesn't need to flex. That's exactly right. And doesn't need to send any messages, because that's not the way it's done. What's it like when someone gets the call to work for him like you did as the chief of staff or some of these men and women are? Now I think the prosecutors who are working with them realize that they just made it to the big league and that they are in the equivalent of the prosecutorial and legal Super Bowl. When I uh, first started working with him as first counsel to him and then as his chief of staff, the late David Margolis, who's been referred to as the conscience of the department, Yoda, and everything in between, he said to me, Lisa, 
this is going to be the best job you've ever had. And with great respect to my former boss, President Obama, David Margolis was right. So how do you think Bob Mueller organizes a big investigation like this in the Mm -hmm. same way that you might have or I might have? Mm -hmm. Do you allocate certain resources to likely leads up front or do you look at everything at once? We can deduce a few things from the steps that he's taken thus far, right? The team he has put together, he's got experts on public corruption investigations, a prosecutor from your office, my former colleague Andrew Weissman, who led the Enron task force and led the Department of Justice Fraud Division, so very schooled in complex financial crimes. He's got experts on international and counterintelligence matters and investigators with that discipline. And importantly, Michael Dreeben, who is the most revered lawyers in the Department of Justice going back decades for his understanding of the criminal law and his ability to see how things are going to play out after a charge is made, after a trial happens in what they call in the legal biz, the appellate phase. And so, you know, that tells me that Mueller and his team are looking at the entire scope of this and are looking down the field as well. You mentioned Michael Dreeben, the name that is not a household name. That's exactly but right. The, the person about whom I'm aware of more professional crushes <laughs> throughout the Department of Justice. Amongst, amongst legal nerds, I think that's legal, true. Legal, legal nerds. That you travel with. So not only did you work for Bob Mueller, you were most recently a top advisor to the president of the United States. And you were in the Oval Office on a regular basis advising on terrorism issues Mm -hmm. and how to keep us safe in America. So thank you for that service. Was that the hardest job you've ever had? Probably, yeah. Just the sheer number of issues that you'd confront every day that the president had to confront and then, by extension, his staff. The sheer range of issues that I had on my plate from terrorist threats, both here at home and to our people overseas, to cyber attacks and cyber threats and that incredibly kind of exponential threat picture that, that we've seen evolve over time, natural disasters like hurricanes and pandemic disease. So I, I had a full panoply of kind of worst case scenario concerns that I was focused on every day and talking to the president about every morning. If the goal of any White House on the issue of national security and public safety is to make sure that everyone is safe and the threats are vanquished, Mm -hmm. to what degree are you supposed to be loyal to the president's agenda on behalf of the American public? You know, it's an interesting question and one that obviously is getting a lot of attention these days, given the discussion about President Trump's agenda and his a lot of staff turnover. The way I looked at this is I wasn't going to agree 100 percent with every decision or every policy of any of the people I've, I've worked for. I think that's probably true. So from time to time, you would give advice in the Oval Office. Absolutely. And sometimes it, your advice was not taken. Mm-hmm. And did you on those occasions go back to your office and immediately phone up the New York Times and the Washington Post and tell them about it? To the point where I had to put speed dial in. The record reflect that you're being sarcastic. <laughs> yes, thank and the you. And reason, the reason, obviously, I asked that question is that's a, apparently what we're seeing right. in the papers every day and these leaks that people talk about As someone who was in that room in the Oval Office before it was redecorated, (laughs) why is that bad? I think that you shouldn't agree with everything that uh, the person you're advising does. They shouldn't want you to. There ought to be disagreement. Otherwise, the president or the FBI director or the attorney general has yes men and women around them, and that's not good. You get into groupthink, and that's all bad particularly when you're talking about matters of of life and death. So did you sometimes think it was your role to disagree, to play devil's advocate? 
so that you could work through the other side of the view? Absolutely. Both in the Oval Office and in the national security uh, space in the Situation Room. When I would lead either the Deputies Committee or the Principals Committee, depending on what the issue was, you want to make sure, at least in the process that I ran and that I saw my colleagues run in those settings, you want to make sure all views are getting out onto the table. You don't want consensus to emerge because, quote, that's what the White House wants. That's going to be a bad decision because it's going to be poorly informed. I learned, it took me a while to learn this, there's a natural inclination to want to be on the side that the boss ultimately ends up going on. How do you guard against that? Because I do have a word, it's all speculation, Yeah. that some of that is what's happening now in the White House. No, it's a real danger. I found I had to check myself on that, not to think, okay, everyone's going to be f- feel free to disagree with me if I'm the one leading the meeting. You have to be mindful that if you're the one who's in the leadership chair, that there are going to be some people who are going to be reticent to do that. It's something I saw President Obama do all the time, which is not lay out his view, but literally go around that situation room table to what we call the backbench seats to make sure that everyone is heard from to inform his view. Who was in the backbench seats? You know, lots of people periodically. You know? Really? Yeah. The the folks who, uh, you know, don't have the nameplate, who aren't the uh, cabinet level member, you know. His or her staff, who oftentimes, frankly, had more interesting things to say than some of the folks at the table. So in connection with keeping the country safe, we have democratic elections in this country and not everyone likes the results if their guy doesn't win. So someone of a different party won and President Obama rode off into the sunset and Donald Trump becomes the president. But then there's this thing called transition. And I wonder what that was, what that was like and if you still talk to those people. I was and I did. And I do. <laughs> so. Uh, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> That's all I needed to know. Every day? Um, so during the transition, I spent many, many hours with my successor, Tom Bossert. I was hoping to impart to him a set of priorities and things that he knew would keep him up at night, but there were other things that maybe he didn't know would keep him up at night, and I wanted to tell him about those. So clearly, the threat of terror attack, cyber threat, Those are two things that were going to be on the top of his list. But I also told him I was very concerned about the problem of emerging infectious disease and things like Ebola or Zika or a new strain of flu that we're not necessarily prepared for and that I thought he needed to be really focused on that issue. I wanted him to focus on the Americans who are still held abroad both by terrorist groups and by regimes. I talked to him about Bob Levinson, the longest person held uh, overseas, about Caitlin Coleman being held by the Haqqani Network, and trying to impress upon him the need to, even with the press of all the other business, keep those people and their families at the top of his agenda and to maintain contact with the families. Did you also talk at all about the importance of guiding principles and how to make sure that the president made the best decision? Mm -hmm. I did. I talked to him about the importance of running a full and fair and transparent process in the Situation Room when he was leading either the deputies committee or the principals through whether it's managing a crisis, terror attack or a natural disaster, or coming up with a policy response and the importance of making sure you got all the information and all the views represented at the table and that he be an honest broker for that. And importantly, the importance of disagreeing, giving your best and full and frankest information and advice to the president. Isn't there an argument, though, that that's bureaucracy? 
and it gets bogged down and that an activist man of action is best served by talking to a couple of people who are really, really smart and then imposing his will so things can be done more quickly. Well, look, the way you lay it out, I'd pick the first two, you know, the activist guy who just gets it done. But the reality is neither one of those two are the preferred outcome. It's a false choice. The decisive leader who's guided by this country's values and principles, informed by experts and willing to listen to differing views, is going to arrive at a better decision and a more informed view nine times out of ten. If the goal is to keep the public safe, what's the degree to which ideology can or should enter into that? Look, I think there ought to be room for differences in ideology, as long as they're not unbending or unyielding to facts that are the product of fully considered, expertly informed discussions. So case in point, President Obama spent a lot of time on the campaign trail criticizing President Bush's approach to the so-called war on terror. And when, and I think he's talked about this, when he got into the seat and literally had the responsibility and got the intelligence about the threats facing the country and really probed the intelligence community on the steps they were taking, whether it's from surveillance to the use of drones, et cetera. He got himself informed by the experts, the intelligence community, the diplomats, you name it, and was willing to say, you know what? We're going to continue some things. We're going to make some adjustments here in other places. But he didn't let ideology, if you want to call it that, be a straitjacket for how he protected the country. We haven't talked about this in years. Mm-hmm. You once told me that you know someone has to call the families of Americans who were beheaded by ISIS in their mm-hmm. savage way, mm-hmm. and that person was you. What was that like, and how did that affect how you thought about the policy, you know, separate apart from what the policy should be sure. intellectually? What was it like to call those families, and then how did that make you think about the policy? So there are two people who made those causes, myself and President Obama, um, when unfortunately Americans were killed by ISIS in the brutal way that you described. And it was probably the hardest thing I had to do in that job because there was no solace I could provide to those parents, and they were going through the most heinous experience you can ever imagine. Uh, But I felt it was important to make sure that they had somebody in the White House, who they could talk to sometimes every day, either uh, right after or uh, before they saw uh, some of those horrible videos. So I was amazed that the parents who had their children killed, um, that ISIS killed in the summer of 2014, had the courage and the generosity, quite frankly, to work with us to reform some of the policies and procedures that we had in place. So even though they were justifiably angry and they were going through horrible grief, they gave of themselves to work with their government to hopefully see future families not have to go through a a similar experience. Let me ask you a final question, Lisa. You served in government at every level, every branch for most of your adult life after going to law school. And it's tremendous service and you were you know, in the game and in the action and having force and influence on so many things. How, how do you feel about not being in it anymore? I miss the mission, right? Because as you said, my job description was literally working with the rest of the president's national security team 
basically the job description was to help keep the country safe. That, it does not get better than that when it comes to job descriptions. But I don't miss getting woken up multiple times a week in the middle of the night by the situation room and the pressure that comes with all of that mission. But I do enjoy feeling a little more rested. Do you have a view when you look at what is going on now in the White House? Are there times when you think they're not handling things right? And if so, yes. does, that make you, does that make you crazy? Here's what I worry about, Preet. There are going to be differences in policy. That's what elections are about. As concerned as I am about some of the policy decisions, the thing I worry about over the long term is the damage to institutions, the damage to appreciation of expertise and making the word career official or career public servant into somehow a dirty set of words. I worry about that because I could not have done my job without having career professionals, subject matter experts helping shape these decisions and these policies. And I worry that there seems to have taken hold in Washington a sense that those people aren't worth listening to and that they don't provide value. And there's a rejection of that. And I think that's unfortunate uh, and really dangerous. Speaking of which, one of the finest public servants that I have ever known, Lisa Monaco, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So we've come to the part of the show, also known as the end, where I talk about something in the news that struck me this week. And and this you may have seen. It's uh, news that the acting head of the Drug Enforcement Administration, Chuck Rosenberg, chose to resign, effective October 1st. Now, there have been some reports that part of the reason he is stepping down is that he doesn't have faith in the president's commitment to the rule of law. I don't know if that's true or not. It'll be interesting to hear what, if anything, Chuck Rosenberg has to say about that. But I thought I'd mention my own personal connection to Chuck. So Chuck Rosenberg is, I believe, a Republican, was appointed by a Republican president, George W. Bush, to become the United States attorney in one of the great districts in the country, not as great as the Southern District, but pretty great, the Eastern District of Virginia. And so when I got nominated by President Obama to be the U.S. attorney at the young age of 40, eight years ago, I wanted to get advice from people who I thought were great leaders by reputation or I knew them personally. And among the people I met were basically all the the living United States attorneys from my district. But outside the Southern District of New York, the person that I wanted to meet with most to get his wisdom, his guidance, and tips on how to do this, this crazy job was Chuck Rosenberg. And he took the time, and he didn't know me, really. And we went and had lunch at Harry's, which is a place I understand, you know, on 11th Street in D.C., where I think he had lunch every single day. And he spent, I think, an hour and a half or two hours with me just telling me his thoughts on how to run a good office. What he told me was, it's not enough just to care about the people who work for you. You have to show them you care. You got to talk to them. You got to get to know them. You got to walk the halls. You have to make them understand that you have their back. Uh, that, that, I think, is one of the best lessons that I've learned in leadership. And on an even more personal note, at some point, Chuck Rosenberg became the chief of staff to the FBI director. And I was coming down to D.C. on a family trip, and I rang him up. And he's probably as busy a person as you can imagine. And I said, you know, my family's coming down. Maybe he and I could have lunch. And he suggested, well, why don't you bring your kids to the FBI, to FBI headquarters? And I thought he was going to send somebody to do a, you know, a guided tour where you get to see the museum at the FBI and you get to see the indoor firing range, which is you know, pretty cool. And Chuck Rosenberg did it himself. And I think he spent two hours 
with my kids explaining to them the history of the FBI. And I think there's now a 27% chance that they want to become FBI agents. The point of this is, you know, he didn't have to take that time. And he was a Republican appointee spending time over a cheeseburger and fries with a Democratic appointee. And it's one of the things that I don't know people appreciate enough, that the right way law enforcement is done is without caring about politics or who someone is um, affiliated with or who they might have voted for, but to do the right thing in every circumstance. So Chuck Rosenberg's departure from government is a loss for the DEA. It's a loss for law enforcement. And I think it's also a loss for all the people, not just me, uh, who he has mentored over the years. That's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Lisa Monaco, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. You know, I'll probably read it and then feel embarrassed that I read my own reviews. Don't forget, if you have questions about news, politics, justice, tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET, which is a crazy numerical coincidence. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle and Jeff Eisenman. We have a new episode for you every Thursday. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.